Hey, uh, I was uh, thoroughly blessed by the event last night. Anybody else? Yeah. I, I want to I take this opportunity. This has been a busy time for a lot of the leaders, and uh, you know, I was tied up with a lot of stuff. I could not help much. Uh, but folks, there are a lot of volunteers, uh, Russ and Mark and, and Mike, put in a lot of time for this, uh, you know, just to get the building ready and, and this is the event. So, you know, all the folks that helped out last night, thank you. Thank you for that. It was a real, real blessing, and uh, I was really encouraged by that. Uh, for those of you who have not been here uh, before, uh, Mike's our primary teacher. I teach about once a month, and uh, uh, I've been going over for the last, not quite a year and a half, uh, the Sermon on the Mount, and since the Beatitudes, you know, blessed are they who, we've been talking about a series of statements that Jesus makes where he says, you have heard, the scribes and Pharisees taught this, but I say unto you, and today, you know, we're going to reach the last one in that series. Uh, in April and May, we covered the passage best known for turn the other cheek. And we concluded that really has nothing to do with nations and war and pacifism and capital punishment and even defending yourself when attacked. It rather has to do with dying to self in our relationships with others. Uh, and as convicting as that message was, today we go where C.S. Lewis might say, higher up and farther in. Uh, what would you say is the most diffic, difficult, counterintuitive thing that we can do in a human relationship? What might be more difficult even than dying for a loved one or a friend? Well, that's exactly what Jesus addressed here in the passage in Matthew 5, starting at verse 43. And you should have this on your sheet. You should have most of the passages there if you want to follow along. And I encourage you to do that. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For He makes His sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only, what do you more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so? Therefore, you shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Now, a little note here. I'm using today, and on your sheet, the New King James Version. I don't usually use that, but I'm doing that for a reason. Some versions based upon certain manuscripts. Remember, we studied manuscripts in the hybrid class. Those are copies of the originals. Some of the manuscripts out there omit the phrase, bless those who curse you and do good to those who hate you. But the New King James includes it, and I'm including it today because whether or not it's in the original, it is clearly taught through the rest of Scripture. Uh, so that's where we are if this doesn't match up with your particular version 
of the Bible, but there's really no substantial difference. Uh, some commentators believe, and I think it's perfectly sensible to conclude, that the love your enemy passage is a continuation of the turn the other cheek passage. Both dealing with the righteousness of believers, except that our passage today addresses the active love side, while the previous passage, turn the other cheek, deals with the passive non-retaliation side. Like the last passage on dying to self, Lord willing, we will cover this current passage that we just read in two sessions today and next month. Now, why so much attention to this particular passage? Well, when you step back and you set aside the confusion about this passage, it becomes clear that this is the pinnacle, the heights of Jesus' teaching on a Christ-like life. As the last passage was, this is likely to be challenging. It certainly was to me. I need you all to play, pay close attention. Stick with me here. Uh, because this is a tough one. I need to be upfront with you. Let's start off with how the scribes and the Pharisees had misinterpreted God's law. We want to look on your sheets there at Leviticus 19. I listed certain portions of that chapter. And we're going to start not at the beginning there, but at verse 18, where it says, You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Now, the scribes and Pharisees actually taught, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, that teaching both omits and adds to the law of God. Their rationalization for that follows from the clear statement in verse 2. If you look at that, where it says the passage is to all the congregation of the children of Israel. Now, follow me here. The scribes and Pharisees therefore concluded that their neighbor were the Jews. Uh, and a fellow, a fellow Jew of the same race, the same faith. They reasoned from that to conclude that for one who was not their neighbor, it was not just their right, but their duty to hate that person. And we know from extra-biblical sources that the Jews looked at non-Jews, the Gentiles, as dogs. And the Gentiles looked at the Jews in much the same way. This intense animosity was so great that it created such a division, it was actually referred to as a wall. This is not in your, in your, on, your, on your handout. But in explaining that the blood of Christ covers Gentiles, the uncircumcised, as much as the Jewish Christians in the early church, Paul writes in Ephesians 2, For he himself, Jesus, is our peace, who has made both Jewish and Gentile believers one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is, the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one man from the two, thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. So that was the problem. They had this huge separation, this huge division, uh, 
and the Jews looked at Gentiles as enemies, and they, the, the, the scribes and Pharisees taught, you should hate them. Now, what did the Word of God, the, the law of God, actually say to them? Uh, to come to that conclusion, to hate your enemy, the scribes and Pharisees had to ignore several clear commandments from God's law, starting in the same passage. Look at verse 9. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not wholly reap the corners of your field, nor shall you gather the gleanings of your harvest, and you shall not glean your vineyard, nor shall you gather every grape of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and the stranger. I am the Lord your God. Now the poor and the stranger clearly included those who were not Jews, but aliens living among them. Look again at verse 33. It says there, If a stranger dwells with you in your land, you shall not mistreat him. The stranger who dwells among you shall be to you as one born among you, and you shall love him as yourself. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Despite their racial differences, the Jews were treated well when Joseph administered in Egypt. And no doubt, by many common Egyptians until their exodus. This is not only a clear sign that the scribes and Pharisees were off track, but is a clear statement against racial discrimination in any age. More directly, if you look at a passage in Exodus 23, which deals with the treatment of enemies, it says there, if you meet your enemy's ox or donkey going astray, you shall surely bring it back to him, your enemy, again. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying under, under its burden, and you would refrain, or you're not sure you want to take it back, you shall surely help him with it. Now there's an almost identical passage regarding an ox or a donkey of a brother, a fellow Jew, in Deuteronomy 22, indicating that the Jews were to treat their brothers or their neighbors, so they thought, and their enemies with the same love. Finally, the scribes and Pharisees could not have been ignorant of Proverbs 25, which Paul repeats in Romans 12 where he says, If your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. If he's thirsty, give him water to drink. For you shall heap coals of fire on his head, and the Lord will reward you. So hopefully you've got a clear message here that Jesus is not establishing a new law to correct or replace the Old Testament law. Rather, he's correcting the misinterpretation of the scribes and Pharisees of what has always been God's substantial law. We see repeatedly in, in the Sermon on the Mount that the Father did not send His Son to earth to fix His broken law, but rather to fix people who had misinterpreted and misapplied and effectively had broken his law. But there's a problem here. Okay? Unlike our previous passages with the misinterpretation of the scribes and Pharisees, this is not so easy. We have some things here, some other things to contend with. When I say we, I mean all Bible believing, studying, people who take the Bible seriously. And in particular, Christians in Topeka, Kansas, who have a much more cognizance or awareness 
of a perspective that is unique to Topeka, in fact, makes us famous in all the world. Up to this point in the Sermon on the Mount, we've been pretty tough on the scribes and Pharisees because Jesus was. But now we want to cut them a little slack or maybe try to explain how they came to this conclusion about hating your enemy. Let's be clear here. There is nothing in the Bible, Old Testament or New, that says, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. But we do find statements that may have given the Jews a rationalization to hate their enemies. Remember when the Jews, when Israel entered Canaan, God commanded them to wipe out the Canaanites, a people known by history to be utterly corrupt in their religion and their lifestyle, uh, practicing all kinds of sexual immorality, both hetero and homosexual. Leviticus 18 describes how the land vomits out the Canaanites and promises the Israelites the same fate if they follow the lifestyle of the Canaanites. Of course, you all remember the examples of Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, The Jews were also told that the Amorites, the Moabites, the Midianites were not to be treated kindly because of their evil practices. But most significantly and most troubling, perhaps, would be the certain hatred that appears in the so-called imprecatory psalms and prayers. And I say that so-called because the word, the verb to imprecate, when I look it up, means to pray evil against. And I don't think that's what's going on at all here. Let's take a look at, uh, at a couple of these. In Psalm 69, again, I think it's on your handout, where we read the prayer of the psalmist concerning God's enemies. Let their table become a snare before them and their well-being a trap. Let their eyes be darkened so that they do not see. Make their loins shake continually. Pour out your indignation upon them. Let your wrathful anger take hold of them. Let their dwelling place be desolate. Let no one live in their tents, for they persecute the ones you have struck. And talk of the grief of those you have wounded. Add iniquity to their iniquity and let them not come into your righteousness. Let let them be blotted out of the book of the living and not be written with the righteous. A psalm we're more familiar with, 139, adds this passage. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, you bloodthirsty men, for they speak against you wickedly. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate them, O Lord, who hate you? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with perfect hatred. I count my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties. And see if there be any wicked way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. Stick with me here. You see a number of other Psalms listed on your sheet there where you will see a similar sentiment. Now, if... You, as a Jew in Jesus' time, were to hear the rabbi teach these psalms and these prayers. You were one of God's chosen at that time. You might come to the conclusion that hating one's enemies and God's enemies was part of God's plan. It's possible, depending on your teacher. In fact, do we not have 
some people today who believe the very same thing you probably saw in Topeka, Kansas. In fact, if you came east on 21st Street, you probably saw them harassing the Presbyterians this morning. Okay? Uh, back at the beginning of the millennia, that's two, the year 2000 or so, uh, several folks, uh, including Jim Lord and Bob Hannibal and I and some others, got involved uh, because we had a polarity there. We had the people who were fighting for the rights of sexual orientation and all that, and we had the people over the Westboro Church. And we frankly believed there was a different perspective that wasn't being considered at the time. Eventually, we got involved with the effort to put on the ballot and have voted into the Kansas Constitution the definition of marriage as being one man and one woman. And in that process, uh, there was some media attention to that. It was a pretty big deal at that time. And so I got uh, some calls from media to explain our position and that sort of thing. And in the process, I needed to explain that we're not with those folks over at the Westboro Church. Okay, we have a different approach. I don't remember what I said. I don't think it was defamatory. I think it was true. Okay, but not too long after that, I got a phone call. Okay, and uh, it started off something like, uh, are you the guy uh, in law school who had all the kids and homeschooled? I said, well, I, yeah, I think so. He says, well, I would have thought somebody like that would have cracked a Bible at least once in their life. That's how it began. Okay, I said, okay. And then it went on to the question to me, what do you do with Esau? Okay, and in fact, the Old Testament, and Paul repeats in the New Testament, Jacob have I loved, and Esau have I hated. Okay? And in my, you know, attempts to try to respond, I finally said, what do you do with Paul? Because in 1 Corinthians 6, he says this, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, homosexuals, sodomites, thieves, covetous, drunkards, revilers, extortioners, none of those will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. He's speaking to the Christians. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of God. In other words, we had Christians in the church at Corinth who had committed all those things. But unlike what the placards say, they were cleansed by the blood of Christ. But it raises the question, nonetheless, how do we reconcile these passages that say explicitly, hate your enemy, and I, I hate them with perfect hatred, and Jesus, love your enemy. Now, there have been several attempts by lots of theologians that I am not to try to explain away this apparent conflict but in my view, those simply do not hold water or square with Scriptures. I don't have time to address those now, but I would like to consider, I'd like you to consider, a consistent and rational explanation that is cohesive with the whole of Scripture. And the concept I want you to try to grasp here is that we, we look at what the psalmist said. He says, I hate them with perfect 
hatred. That's a strange combination of words. Perfect hatred, I would submit to you, is a judicial, not a personal hatred. The psalmist does not speak with personal animosity, but as a representative of God. He hates them because he loves God. He is so confident that his hatred is perfect hatred that he beseeches God in the very next breath, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me or test me and know my anxieties. See if there's any wicked way in me. So the term judicial here means judgment, God's judgment. The psalmist does not write about himself, his personal animosity, but rather about the law, about God's people, and frankly, God's church. He is most concerned about the honor of God. Now, this is a hard one for us to grasp, and it's not because of our superior love for others. But for us, it's because of our inferior love for God. Our inability to hate the wicked with a hatred that is judicial, that is perfect, that is not personal. Unless I miss my guess, you have said at one time or another in dealing with this problem, as have I, hate the sin, love the sinner, right? Okay, And it seems so simple, we kind of washed away the whole thing with that phrase. But it's really not all that simple. The truth is that evil people, maybe some of our enemies, should be the object simultaneously of our love and our hatred. Please stick with me here. This is the important part. I thought it was so important that I put it explicitly on the handout because if some passerby comes by the parking lot and picks up this handout, I don't want him to think that Westboro has moved to the southwest. Okay? Here's the important part. To love your enemy, that evil person, is to desire with the whole heart that they repent, that they accept God's payment for their sins and accept the free gift of salvation. Why? Because God is perfectly loving and He's perfectly just. To hate them is to equally desire that if they stubbornly refuse to repent and believe, that they will incur God's wrath and judgment. Why? Because He is perfectly loving and perfectly just. And God must stay true to His character. Now, I know that there's some feeling out there, because some of you have talked to me very honestly as, a, as good brothers and sisters, that, well, Kent's a Marine, and so he kind of teaches in a certain way. And it's kind of black and white and all that. Okay, all right, fair enough. I resemble that remark. All right? You might be tempted here, I have to admit. Well, Kent's a lawyer. So he's now giving us this lawyer-like distinction. All right? Hatred, personal versus judicial. Well, hatred's hatred. You know, how do you tell the difference? Let me reassure you. I did not come up with this. Okay? I did not understand this concept. I've studied a number of different sources and, and commentators on this, and the one that is, I think, the most authoritative, the one that's most written most, uh, uh, most on this issue, is a guy named Martin Lloyd-Jones. He was an evangelical pastor in England. He died about 35 years ago. Powerful preacher and expositor. He's the one who opened my eyes to how we can reconcile this apparent contradiction. Uh, now, 
if you still don't buy what I'm saying here, you've got some explaining to do. Okay? Jesus tells us here to love our enemies. But, if you turn over a few chapters to Matthew 23, you will read some warm and fuzzy words there. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, blind guides, fools, full of hypocrisy and lawlessness, whitewashed tombstones, sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your father's guilt. Serpents, brood of vipers. At the loving language we would normally associate with love your enemies. But this is the same guy that said, love your enemies. So, if you're not buying what I'm saying here, I've got to ask you the question. What do you do with Jesus? Why does Jesus tell us to love our enemies? Because that is what God does. For He makes His Son to, to rise on the evil and on the good. He sends His reign on the just and on the unjust. You know, God gives believers and unbelievers alike a lot of good stuff. His creation, marriage, children, rain, and the warmth of the sun. We call this common grace. Now, to be careful here, some interpret this common grace to mean that God's love prohibits Him from punishing folks for sin. They say, everybody's going to go to heaven because after all, God is love. And God is love. But if you take that view, you might want to ask a few questions. First of all, ask yourself, would I ever tell my kids that? No consequence for any wrong? You might ask some folks if they believe God never punishes, like Cain, the citizens of Sodom and Gomorrah, the Israelites whenever they became rebellious. And come to think of it, every single human being except the eight that survived on Noah's Ark. Finally, you might want to ask Jesus what He meant by that final judgment in which all who do not repent are going to a place called the Lake of Fire. I don't think that's a sunny resort somewhere. Okay? So, the only way that I can see to resolve this what some call a contradiction, which I do not believe is a contradiction, is to recognize ultimately this judicial element. God does indeed bless. He gives His common grace to those who hate and defy Him. And yet He tells them in no uncertain terms that they must see themselves as worthy of eternal death just like all of us in here. Yet they must repent or they will face a final and eternal destruction. The mistake that the scribes and Pharisees was to take what was meant as a judicial, impersonal uh, guidance and use it as their guiding light for their personal relationships with their enemies. And frankly, my opinion is that that's what, in some sense, that's what the folks at the Westboro Church have done. The very same thing. So, key, key definition, I think it's on your, your sheet there. Perfect hatred is hatred for God's enemies that is free from spite, rancor, and vindictiveness 
and instead is wholly focused on His honor, His righteousness, and His judgment. It is motivated only by the love for God and His glory. And it will be expressed by God's redeemed, seeing His perfect justice carried out on the wicked, when they will all cry out, Alleluia! Salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God. For true and righteous are His judgments because He has judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication and He has avenged on her the blood of His servants shed by her. Amen. Alleluia. It's in Revelation 19. That will be a wonderful day. Now, the illustrations that Jesus uses here are positive. In the previous passage, He commanded us not to strike back out of personal vengeance. Here He goes on to the positive command, love your enemies, bless who curse, do good to those who hate, pray for those who use you and persecute you. As in the last passage, we're again dealing with the attitude of a Christian towards others. In the the don't resist evil and turn the other cheek passage, we discussed that the only way to really accomplish that is to die to self, self self-interest, self-concern. Here, we're commanded to go beyond death to self, to actually love those same people who curse, hate, and persecute us. Our enemies are also our neighbors. Jesus takes us to perhaps the most difficult, but yet quintessential aspect of Christian living. We know this because he ends this passage with, you are to be perfect even as your Father in heaven is perfect. I'll try to hit that next time. Practical application time here. It's always good to figure, well, okay, so what? How do we apply this? Well, we need only to look at how God treats us to try to understand here. What made God give His only begotten Son that whosoever believes on Him should not perish but have everlasting life? Was it something loving, lovable, and lovely in you and me? No, not at all. It was in spite of us. It was His own eternal heart of love unaffected by anything outside of itself. A love that was unattached and disinterested that depended on nothing in us. For us, this means that our treatment of others, even our evil, unjust enemies, is to be detached from what they are and how they treat us. Rather, it depends on how we view them and their condition. To do that, to be detached from reacting to how they treat us, we must first be detached from ourselves. Until one is detached from or dies to him or herself, one will never be detached from what others do and say to that same self. So much of life, of my life anyway, has been taken up in reacting to how others act, how they treat me, how they talk to or about me so that I can find myself consumed with unkind, even evil thoughts about those people. Here, Jesus calls the Christian as a new man or woman, creature and creation, 
to no longer be controlled by what others do and say, but rather by the love of the Holy Spirit. Again, we take our example from God. He sees all the sin and the shame of the unjust, but he sees it as a result of Satan's work. So therefore he makes his sun to shine and the rain to fall on the unjust and the evil. When we see someone who has sinned against us or others or against God, we are to see them not as the targets of our vengeance or wrath, but as hell-bound sinners controlled by the God of this world. Rather than allowing that person to irritate me, I should pray for and do everything I can to turn that one to Christ. Now we do this not just by being nice or looking for their inner goodness. Okay? We cannot, by ourselves, redeem or fix the evil and the unjust. However, we can display the love of Christ to them. We can live in such a way and respond in such a way that they will look and perhaps say or at least think, what's different about you? Why are you responding to me that way when I'm throwing rocks at you? And we can say honestly, it's not because I was born this way. It's only because of the grace of God who has changed me. And what the love of God has done for me, He can do for you. So, how do we show this love of God to others? Jesus explains. Bless them that curse you. For their bitter words, we return kind words. Do good to them that hate you. We return good deeds for evil deeds. Pray for them that spitefully use you and persecute you. First ask, is my persecution a result of something I said or did? If so, we've got to make things right ourselves. We need to ask for forgiveness. But if it's a result of the sin nature of that other person, we need to remember that that same sin nature is taking, is walking that person by the hand to hell. I must become so concerned for their attorney that I don't have time to feel sorry for myself. Rather, I pray for that persecutor. I know what some of you are thinking. In your mind, you're saying, Vincent, you have no idea what my enemies are like. They're, they're cruel, they're evil, they say all this stuff about me. You know, they've done this, they've done that. Pretty hard for me to come up with any positive thoughts about animals like that. Well, let me try to resolve some of your conflict here. Jesus did not say, like your enemies. Okay? Now, you say, well, great, that helps. Well, remember, we tend to look at liking as a lesser form of love. But in reality, liking has to do with personality and and temperament and a lot of factors like that. It's in a whole different category than what we're talking about. You can hate. So, you can love somebody you do not like. You can pray for somebody's eternity even if you don't like them and the way that they act. The alternative is to allow your own bitterness towards that person to consume your every thought and eat up your insides. You choose. Finally, Surprise, I suggest we follow the leader. Okay? Um, This is the ultimate test here. 
I want you to think in terms of what's happening today. Picture yourself not, you know, in this nice, cool auditorium here, or even in the cooler basement downstairs, but rather you are about to be executed for an ISIS YouTube video. Choose your method. We've seen them all. Can you really forgive? Can you pray for? Can you love your vicious, cruel persecutors? Look to the cross. What did Jesus do? Father, forgive them. They do not know what they do. Well, that was Jesus. Of course, He could do it, but no mere mortal could be expected to pray for and love an enemy as vicious like that, torturing and killing. What does the Word of God say? This is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. In other words, love is active, and it is Doable. What did Jesus teach in the parables? Remember the Good Samaritan? Samaritans were the sworn enemies of the Jews. The Jews hated the Samaritans, and the Samaritans felt likewise. But yet, when the Jew was waylaid by the robbers, all these other Jews on the other side of the street, they just passed by. But the Samaritan, the enemy of the Jew, he crosses over. He loves his enemy. What did the apostles say? Remember? If your enemy hunger, feed him. If, he has, if he's thirsty, give him drink. What did the apostles do? Remember, Paul, that same Paul, then Saul, watched as his comrades in arms against the Christians stoned Stephen to death. And Stephen uttered, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. You know, I don't understand it. But God loves this sinful world. And His saints have done the same throughout the centuries. And we, all of us in here, can do the same. Now, if you're like me, you've got a problem. It's called a memory. I suspect we all remember unloving, perhaps even hateful attitudes, if not words, we have expressed towards others. Perhaps people who we thought deserved it. Okay, Maybe it was that person who cut in front of us. Maybe it was that pedophile in our family. Maybe it was the mass jihadist with the knife that we saw on the, on the video. There is a place for righteous anger. Yet, while God calls us to hate and condemn evil, He also calls us to love, forgive, and pray for. To do good, to even return good for evil to those same people. Because He makes His Son to to rise on the evil and on the good, and He sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Thankfully, praise God, He sent His Son to die on the cross for each and every one of us. We who fail, it is while we perfect righteousness, we who are evil in His sight. 
It is while we were still sinners, still His enemies, that Christ died for us. And still, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is His command, that I love my enemies the same way He loves even me. Each Christian, each Christ follower must choose, must decide to obey. Finally, if you're not sure that you are loved that way, that you've been forgiven for your sins, that you would like to know that you are, that you would like to spend eternity with Him, please see one of us because servers are some of the time, or somebody else that you trust and who you know is there. Because that is your decision. Father in heaven, Lord God, this is a tough, tough teaching. Jesus gives us a, what we view as a very high, high standard. But Lord, you've told us that you won't ask us to do anything that we're not possible, that we can't do. And Lord, I pray that you would work in our hearts, that you would change us, change our attitudes and help us to have that judicial love and that judicial hatred just as you do. At the same time for the same people. Lord God, help us to understand that we have that obligation all around us whether it be for terrorists or adulterers or the, or the homosexuals, we should be praying for them, for their salvation, bringing them to you. Whether it be for the folks over at the Westboro Church, we should be praying for them and loving them in the same way. Father, we ask that you would give us these balance buckets. Help us to understand how to live out this command in our lives. Lord, we know you're not finished with us. We give praise for that fact. We ask that you would continue to make us worthier vessels for your use. We ask all these things in the precious and the holy name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.